Welcome to Beyond Coding, a dive into the world of successful people in IT. From your sponsors, Zebia, creating digital leaders. Here's your host, Patrick Akil. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the End to End Live session. For this session, we'll record an episode of the Beyond Coding podcast. And today I have with me Zoe Langdon from Bucks Crypto. Uh, Zoe has a very broad background in a lot of things. Uh, and we'll start with his more of entrepreneurial background. Is that kind of a, a nice description for it? I, I guess you could say that. Yeah. 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 yeah, I did a lot of research on you, obviously, for this <laughs> show, uh, especially because it's live now. And this, this is our first live show as well. Uh, and I saw you started with a, a lot of startups, actually. Uh, but the one that stood out to me was Blockport. Uh, right. Can you explain to our audience what Blockport kind of is and how it got to be? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Blockport was definitely one of the most, uh, I guess, intensive ones. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, it's crypto related. So that that that's that already kind of makes it makes it interesting. We started this, um, well, the idea itself in 2017. Yeah. Um, as we got more into crypto, we realized that um, the real importance is to make it available for a lot of people and make it easily accessible because it's very abstract. Yeah. So Blockport was intended to uh, be a kind of three-phased uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, offering to users just very uh, simple crypto trading. Yeah. Um, so basically aggregating external exchanges to offer a simplified interface to that. Okay. Um, because you don't want to think about all these complicated charts and such. And then um, the second phase is social trading. We really believe that um, there's a very, uh, kind of the social dynamics is something that you can utilize very well, uh, not only for a business, but also for user engagement and uh, and sharing information and learning for users. Yeah. And then the third one um, is because we believe in the ideology behind crypto, um, still do, um, we believe that decentralization should ideally uh, be an aspect also of, of, the, of these trading platforms that, that we were building. Um, and that's why we intended as a third phase, basically, to to launch it as a, a hybrid decentralized exchange, as you call it. Yeah. And that basically means um, you'll have a similar experience to what you would have on a, on a typical crypto exchange. Um, but in our case, um, there would actually be quite some scenarios where you would be the holder or at least the only uh, custodian or shared custodian of um, your crypto. So that okay. makes it less risky. Yeah. For a lot of people, it's more interesting. Yeah. Well, the second phase you mentioned was kind of social trading. Yeah. That term is not familiar with me. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, as we, we started to figure out exactly how we wanted to build it, we also realized that it's, uh, it's, it's quite a lot more complicated than, uh, than it, it might make it out to be. Yeah. Um, the idea really is to be able to, to initially just copy other people. Right. So, um, trading, but also crypto trading, is generally considered um, pretty complicated. It's it's challenging um, and it's also very risky. So in that sense, it's really nice if not only you can learn from other people, but also you can actually uh, delegate some of your your assets to other people that might be uh, more effective as traders or just more knowledgeable and experienced. Oh, interesting. So they would actually get gain access to your funds and be able to trade with it. Well, or is that, it not that simple? Luckily, not not access to their <laughs> to, to funds. Uh, that would definitely raise some eyebrows, I, yeah. I, I guess. But um, def- so, what it would work like is: imagine you hold uh, some portfolio portfolio in, in stocks or or in crypto. Yeah. Um, then I, as someone that doesn't understand all of that, I can say, well, I think Patrick is an awesome trader. Um, I want to dedicate part of my portfolio to his moves. So basically, I'm going to copy your moves. Oh, okay. Um, and that was the initial idea. Yeah. Uh, good reactions on that also when we did like user tests and such. 
Um, but in reality, it's actually pretty complicated to build. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we didn't end up uh, releasing it eventually. So. Okay, yeah. I, I have heard of it then, because nowadays uh, you kind of call it shadow trading, I guess. Or right. you shadow someone uh, and you trade based off their trades. Yeah. That's in essence what it what it was then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Itora also, for example, offers this. It's copy trading also called. Yeah, um, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I've seen one of those ads on, right. uh, on YouTube. Yeah. yeah, so let's uh, let's move back to 2017 then. Um, what were you doing at the time and how did you transition into this startup? Right, so at that time I was running a web development agency. Yeah. Um, and uh, it went quite well. We did we did interesting th- stuff for, um, uh, in particular, Election Compass and uh, an Independer. Election Compass is a, uh, Kies Compass in, in Dutch, is a uh, voting advice application. It's, it's quite common and, and, and used here. It's quite an interesting topic, but then... At that time, uh, I already got in touch with uh, who are now my co-founders, and uh, we shared a lot of a lot of ideology and vision regarding uh, autonomy and such. And we, first of all, it was just ideas. I mean, we were, we were interested in crypto. We we knew what Ethereum was. Yep. Uh, we held a little bit of Bitcoin, and there was the Gulde back in the day. That was a crypto that that uh, we were uh, excited about. Yeah, and. After a while, we realized that whenever we explained to, say, friends or, or, or parents uh, what, what it actually was that we were you know, thinking about and doing, um, we, we found it really, really difficult to do. Nowadays, I guess it's a little bit easier because it's in the newspapers and all that. Yeah. But it, at that time, it was difficult. So we realized that to, and we really believe, of course, in, in this product, right? So I think that was really the fundament of us uh, starting it and me deciding also to move out of uh, the, uh, the startup that I had back then. So basically, I had to delegate all the projects and, and move on to something new. Um, is because crypto and, and hopefully we can get into that um, can really change a lot of things for the better. Um, yeah. Now it's it's all ideology, but we need to actually you know, put in time and, and effort to to try to make that work. Um, so that's why we decided to uh, just give it a go, basically, uh, and uh, then we launched an ICO. Yeah, uh, what is that? So an ICO is, um, if you're familiar with an IPO, it's basically when a, when a company uh, goes public. Yeah. Uh, so you can you can buy the share or trade the shares on a particular exchange. And uh, in our case, uh, an ICO was just an initial coin offering. So you do something similar, but then you create a token that yeah. is tied to, to the business that you're launching. Okay. And usually this happens with a white paper that you release or uh, first write naturally. And then, um, yeah, you have to get a community around that. You have to tell people what your idea is. And, and, and of course, with time into marketing, and then you have a date on which people can send, in our case, it was Ethereum to a, a smart contract address. Yeah. And then they get back the token that you uh, already released uh, on the chain. Yeah. And we did this and it, w- it was really funny. Um, we were only with three people and we were in this co-working space yeah. uh, sitting behind a laptop. So you have to imagine like there was, there was nothing serious yet about the whole idea. It was just kind of scrappy. We're going <laughs> to do this ICO. We're going to do marketing and see if it works. We have this idea. Yeah. And... We were really lucky also to get good advisors. So we had people um, from BWC uh, and, and Osborne Clark and such. So they really helped us out at that, at that time because there's a, a lot of new stuff. Yeah. But we were sitting behind our laptops doing the ICO. And I, I remember I built this, um, this progress bar mm-hmm. just to show like how far are we actually with the fundraising. And I remember being a little bit worried, like, is this, is this going to work? Uh, did, I, did I make a mistake? Because it was all really hasty and I just, you know, coded something together to yeah. try and try and make it work to kind of track the, 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 the Ethereum chain. And after like a few minutes, uh, the bar was full and, and a few minutes. Yeah. So I was like, that, that can't yeah, what be happened? Right. So turns out that the, we were just completely sold out. 
okay. in, a, in a few minutes. So uh, and that was a fascinating moment because I was actually scrambling to kind of figure out, like, did something go wrong? Uh, perhaps security related or, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong with ICOs and, yeah. and it was pretty new back then. Uh, but no, it turns out that, that we just were completely sold out and we were super surprised by that. Uh, and the, yeah, then, then the real story started basically and we had to kind of set up an actual company and such. That's awesome. So for an ICO, you start obviously because you, you created, let's say this coin, you start out holding all of it, right? Well, yes and no. So in, in that case, we would be uh, the owner basically of the contract yeah. that, that more or less um, creates or distrib distributes this token. Yeah. But you're not the direct holder, even oh, though okay. you, theoretically you are the custodian because we could decide to do something with that token. But exactly. it's it's really, uh, it's just built into the contract that you have to send ETH there and then you can, you can get the token back. Yeah. And how did, did those people receive the token, for example? Because for them, it's an investment, right? They believe in your vision. They believe in your product. So for them, it, it's an investment. And for that, they get back uh, the token that you created. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did they hold it somewhere? Did they hold it on the platform that you already created? Or how did that, how does that usually go? So at that time, we didn't offer that. Um, I think that that would be something you call an initial exchange offering where you do something similar to what we do, but then you actually use an exchange rather than only a blockchain. Ah, okay. And so in our case, people sent their Ethereum to us and what they got back in the same address was our token. Yep. So it's an ERC-20 token, as you call that, which is a, a standard that you can use to to create a token on the Ethereum network yep. and now also on, on other chains. And that's basically what, what they bought and got into their uh, their own wallet so they could still use the same private key and such or yeah. whatever what whatever they used to. Awesome. Yeah. So circling back to that, that progress bar moment, you saw it completely filled up, uh, which means people were interested and they actually had stake in the game now, at least a little bit. Uh, what was the next step then? Right, so the next step, and this, is, this was a really big, big learning moment. Um, we were very, very ambitious and I think we, you know, in the end, you're, you're capable uh, enough to, to kind of envision we're going to be able to build this. And on a high level, you understand, like, this is what we're going to do. Yep. We had to scramble to get, like, a team together fast because exactly. we didn't have a product that was live yet. We needed to deliver something. And suddenly you have a community and also people that you have to, I mean, you're accountable for something. Yep. They, they invested, yeah. even though there's not something like investor protection um, it, it, it goes without saying that that's something that's just out of general ethics. You yeah, should use it really responsible. For yeah. It. Yeah. So that was that was pressurizing. We had to really uh, scramble to get together a team. So uh, we've, we tried to uh, to do that as fast as possible. And naturally, it really helped that you're kind of this exciting project. Right. So to get engineers on board and, and good ones that are interested in, in, in this domain was actually remarkably easy. OK. It was more difficult to think about the uh, underlying like domain knowledge was still pretty and it still is uh, pretty scarce there's not a lot of people that know a lot about crypto yeah uh, at least the underlying tech um, so that was that was a challenge for sure but we had really good people that, and actually i decided to not hire for people that already knew it yeah but rather people that were interested and uh, seemed very very capable of picking it up okay and, uh, eventually that was actually a good decision so rather than testing their domain knowledge you tested their technical skills or, or how did you go about this because you were the one together with your co-founders uh, that went hiring, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I know that hiring is a, is a hot topic and it's a complicated one as well. And I think everyone has his own kind of strategy Yeah. where it really depends also on the situation. Like if you're a startup and 
there's not really there's not really a structure that you can hire for. Yeah, there's no guideline. No, there it's like you're not you're gonna you're not even gonna be able to tell someone this is what you'll be doing. Yeah. It's basically this is our idea. Yeah. You wanna join or not? They need they need to believe in that vision. Yeah, yeah. So it was more at that time at least, it was more about personality. So I, I do I do generally try to get a good perspective of someone's values in the first conversation. Because yeah. I think culture and, and values are very in, uh, interrelated. And it really, it, it's a person's values that you really see in a day-to-day basis whenever they have to make a decision. And considering there is barely or basically no process, it comes down to a lot of decisions and a lot of responsibility initially. So that's what I really tried to focus on. Um, awesome. And, uh, and it worked, uh, I think. Uh, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so then, how did you how did you test for that? Just in a in a general one to one conversation, stuff about ownership and responsibility and all that. Yeah. So I would I, I really like um, sketching difficult situations. Okay. Um, I really want to understand what does someone do under pressure. Yeah. Because there is constant pressure and things are going to go wrong, perhaps very badly. Luckily, I have to like touch wood, but luckily they didn't <laughs> go wrong very badly for us. Yeah. But they can. And it, it's really like, how can you operate at that time? Do you get stressed? Do you get angry? Or are you supportive and communicative? And yeah. I think that, that for me is, has always been a very important part because uh, that enables everyone in the team to take responsibility and ownership over what they're doing. Yeah. And I would prepare uh, with these questions and also allow uh, a lot of questions actually from the other side because it's not, in, in a good conversation, at least that's what I believe, it's not the company necessarily that's deciding whether they want to hire the employee. If the, if the person is good enough yeah. and, and really will add value. It's also up to them to decide if they actually want to work with you. Yeah. So I was, I was really happy to have um, one-on-one conversation. I'm, I'm really looking for, for a point where you can really have a interesting conversation with someone about their addition to the company and their vision as well and what they're interested in, yeah. what, what drives them to do what they're doing. And, and once that's settled, of course, I want to want to see some code. I would ask for them. You have <laughs> repositories or whatever you can send me. Yeah, but generally, that would not be the first priority. Okay, that's awesome. I, I love that you said uh, you were kind of sharing that vision uh, because you are initially in a startup phase. You don't really have a product yet. You don't really have a, a user base. I mean, you guys had kind of a community, uh, but you need to attract people with a shared vision. And it's even more amazing that they can also contribute to that vision and probably give you some. Uh, some ideas of, of how to go uh, or where not to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were really dependent on that. I mean, let's face it, we, we, we were and are young. Yeah. So and you guys it, were definitely trailblazing as well when it comes to the domain. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I guess. And, you know, that, that, that really, you can, you can be honest about that. Like, we, I need to learn from everyone that we hire as well. And they, they need to lead us through a lot of things too. Yeah. And that, that really is important in terms of the dynamic. You need to trust a lot uh, in each other because someone joins your your vision or your company, and uh, yeah, I, I'm really happy as well with uh, with that focus and people that are that are able to challenge every idea. Yeah, sometimes annoyingly so, but that that's part of it, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that that comes with it. I, I'd say if people have a strong sense of ownership, they will challenge you on a lot of aspects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is completely fine. That makes the product better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and also increases the um, the trust and the bond between people. I think. Yeah. Exactly. So speaking of the product. Uh, you formed a team and you you attracted uh, enough attention to hire people as well. How did you go about actually developing this project and putting it out live? Wow. So, well, as I said, there was no process. Yeah. Really not. So we, we scrambled to set something up, uh, basically set up something in the cloud, made a decision for what cloud provider we're going to pick, yeah. and uh, just started very iteratively, very scrappy. Um, and 
then the first step really was we need a product owner. We need yeah. someone that is capable of formulating um, to, to a very high level of detail and granularity what we're going to be building. So that was definitely the, the most important step when we found a, a really good uh, product owner. Then from that point on, it was really hiring, 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 and actually using also, we actually worked with uh, Xibi as well at that time. Interesting. It's really cool, yeah, to uh, to set something up from scratch. Yeah. And that's really when we needed um, a few architects, and we just I decided to do that externally um, because it's a short-lived project. You need to leave with, our team should leave with a lot of knowledge yeah. and then be able to take care of it uh, on their own. Exactly. And, uh, and getting those ideas in can take a while. So uh, that, that's really uh, what we basically decided to do is product owner, external people, grow the team in that time as well yeah. over a period of like three to six months. Then we would take over on our own after like six months. Uh, and that way we were able to release the product and still end up, eventually end up with an architecture that was say 70% of what we wanted. And yeah. then we could do the last 30% ourselves. That's awesome. So you kind of got that jump start in by, by looking externally rather than hiring the people you needed and the skills you needed. Yeah, uh, because you, I mean, you took the responsibility of actually executing more so than kind of uh, imagining what the architecture should be. Yeah, and I, I don't believe in um, in like if you if you develop a product specifically if you develop a product, yeah, you want to have a lot of the knowledge and vision internally, and you want to like create a, a kind of a, a pressure cooker of ideas. Yeah, and naturally, eventually you start to settle for like a, a system, like a process. Uh, and that, that didn't happen to us because we were so early stage. Um, but it's it's usually in this kind of storming phase, yeah. then it's really useful to get uh, a lot of new ideas in from people that do not have the same skin in the game because they can provide a really good uh, perspective in, in discussions and conversations. Because yeah. when you are still uh, storming and everyone is kind of still figuring out like what is your role going to be yeah how do we how do we relate to each other what's the kind of social dynamic and hierarchy that we're choosing for or eventually settling on yeah then you end up with more in-depth discussions and more clashes yeah whereas someone that is doesn't have any skin in the game exactly they can just offer a neutral idea and, yeah. and that really helps to kind of uh, keep a good progress in, in terms of uh, discussions and decisions yeah that's awesome so i mean you rely on those people for that outside expect that uh, uh, how do you say that? Uh, <laughs> perspective. Perspective, yeah. That's the one I was yeah. going for, yeah. And that you mentioned storming. Do you mean event storming then as well? Uh, no, I mean, um, uh, you have these uh, these phases a team goes through. Yeah. Um, I think it's forming, storming, norming, performing. Yeah. And uh, I'm not like hell-bent on all those those models, but <laughs> I, I definitely feel that we, we definitely went through a storming phase. Okay, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. yeah. How, how did you guys go about user testing? Because to me, that's always an important aspect of product development. I mean, you want the user to give you their feedback so you can make your product better. Uh, how did you guys go about doing that? Yeah, so that that's interesting because, and this also ties into our uh, us joining Bucks. Is that yeah. at that time we were actually very lucky with the community because the community they have they have skin in the game. Yeah, and they're super willing to. They have a vision as well because they, they subscribe to your vision, and they're super willing to do testing. So it wasn't hard at all actually to find people that were willing to do that. Awesome. Um, so our product owner took care of most of those things and we were able to get a lot of feedback on the product. To be honest, sometimes a little bit too much. Yeah. Because it's difficult to, I mean, eventually you have to run the product and make the decisions. And yeah. if you have a few people delivering ideas externally, and I think in a typical product company, you would have users that have some ideas. But if you're a startup, you don't have users, so you have to decide everything. In our case, we were heavily outnumbered basically. Yeah. So we had more, like we had a lot of strong opinions from the community and we had to figure out like, okay, 
what what do we choose now and where do you decide to sometimes say no and that's probably not going to make everyone happy but you have to kind of structure your decision yeah i can imagine that when you get feedback it's it's of the more more vocal part of the community uh while there could be like a silent majority let's say and you still need to keep track of your vision and be like no this is where we want to go uh, so we have to say no and make these these kind of harsh decisions to yeah. the people that are vocal yeah. yeah how did you guys how did you guys communicate was it somewhere online where they could contribute or how did you reach out to that community that you keep talking about it's all in telegram basically yeah. that that's really where it all happens yeah everyone just joined uh, joined our uh, telegram uh, channels and uh, and and that's basically the the pool that we used also to set up user interviews and such and process all that feedback and uh, and also get input for designs and and other decisions yeah. and we also had to share our progress updates and and do AMAs and such uh, to really develop and maintain a relationship with uh, with the community that's really cool how do you know how big your group got on telegram wow um Yeah, at some point it was around 20k, 20 20,000 people. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It definitely shrank uh, yeah. a lot, but uh, uh yeah, that was that was that was that was big. I think at the time we uh, we did the uh, the ICO for example. Yeah. Uh, it was really uh, interesting. If you would follow the Telegram channel because there was there was like a really crypto boom happening already. Yeah. The amount of messages was you could not follow at all. It was yeah. going so incredibly fast that there was there was not there was just images being shared. It was it was quite interesting to see like how active a group can get like that if it's uh, if it's prime time. Yeah, I mean if it's 20k and let's say 1% is uh is having a discussion, that's still 200 people sending out their messages and uh, and you have to keep track of that I guess to a certain degree. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You mentioned coming in contact with Bucks uh, later on. How did that happen? Right. So We've, I think, always, and especially now in retrospect, we've we figured out that we've always aligned in terms of vision or or values rather. So, Bucks really does a great job at making investing, which is also complicated uh, in in kind of the traditional worlds like stocks and, and, and ETFs and such. Yeah, they make it very easy. Like they have a very user friendly app. They have a lot of users. They spend a lot of time on thinking about branding, communication, and simplicity of user experience. Yeah. And that's really something that we also focused on a lot. Turns out, actually, from a technical perspective, we also had uh, quite some matches in terms of our architecture and decisions that we made, cool. which made it quite easy for us to communicate with each other, uh, just about like you know what are you building, how does it work, and such. Yeah. So we were already in touch with uh, with Nick, who is uh, the, the one of the founders of, uh, of Bucks. Um, quite early on, he was a user of, uh, of Blockboard. He followed the project; was was quite nice. And in 2019, when Blockboard basically went. Uh, Yeah, we we stopped more yep. or less. We went bankrupt. Then um, we uh, we were talking with Nick, uh, and it turns out that this this really this alignment on on values and vision, and also their interest in crypto, yeah, uh, really was a uh, was a reason to continue the conversation. And then eventually we we realized that we really aligned on making investing and like opening new asset classes, making investing easier for people that uh, want to do well more with their money, as Buck says. Uh, which which is definitely something that uh, that yeah they're really happy in retrospect that we uh, we agreed on, on such a vision together, um, and uh, now that we're working together, uh, is also looking really like a, like an integration that's happening rather than working in silos. So that that's very nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, just to step back a bit, you mentioned um, bankruptcy of then Blockport, I guess I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, was that before you got in touch with with Bucks? Uh, no. no, no, that was uh, that was that was after. Yeah. Um, We were just, it was really just a conversation, like it was more a user or an interested user rather than uh, than really a conversation about us joining Bucks. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, yeah, so so it was, it was, we were already in touch, but that was really just 
like high level. Exactly. Yeah. So first it, it was low key, I guess, uh, and then you actually got into the conversation of like, all right, let's join forces and uh, and let's do. Yeah, and it was a difficult phase for us. I mean, you know, you 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 invest a lot of time and effort into something, and yeah. uh, uh, you, you you know you make good decisions, and we made also a couple of bad decisions. I think. Yeah. Uh, which is which is natural. And uh, one of them, I think, uh, really uh, was was a good one in that in that sense, um, is that we decided not to give up, yep. uh, and uh, we really wanted to actually create something and still at least bring part of that vision to life. Uh, but it was it was a difficult period because you know the, the company stops, uh, yep. the music really stops at some point, and that and the crypto market went uh, through a winter, and oh, that yeah. that really that really was uh, was quite impactful for us because we're a trading company, right? So we uh, first of all revenues would be done by but just trading uh, a volume and, yeah. and that was just not enough yeah exactly i mean you guys started in 2017 and uh, for the people that don't know end of 2017 was uh, a bull market as they call it yep. uh, in which the currencies just went straight through the roof <laughs> yeah. uh, most of the time and then 2018 and 2019 it was kind of let's call it a, a bear market where there were kind of lower lows and, and less trading going on yeah so i'm assuming that's kind of the reason why um you had way less trading volume and you had to file for bankruptcy. Is yeah. that an assumption that I can make? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, naturally these things are very complicated, but um, yeah. uh, definitely the market has a huge impact on that. And also, you know, you're developing a product for a market that at that point does not exist. And there was a lot of, uh, or I mean, it was there, but it's not a, as large as, as uh, the whole vision starts with, right? So yeah. you have to really adapt. And at that point, I think, it's really important to, I, I believe in the idea of always be, you have to always be deciding basically when you're running something. You cannot, like hope is not a strategy. You cannot hope that it will exactly. end. So you have to decide at some point, like what are we going to do? Yeah. Because we're looking at this reality right now. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really a point where you have to say, okay, this is this is the decision we're making. Yeah. And uh, and that, that was that was interesting, a good learning experience. Yeah, I, I can guess so, yeah. So in joining forces with Bucks, I mean, you came from a position where uh, you were in charge. You got to decide kind of the team that you assembled, uh, also the processes that you put together in place. Um, did that change when when joining forces with Bucks, or, or did you get to keep that part of autonomy? Let's just call it. Right. So, I think I think it's. Um, I mean, it depends on what aspect you're looking at. So yeah. we were we were lucky actually to have most of the team members that we had at Blockboard that we, we needed. Yeah, we were still in touch. Like I, I would say that the culture also was was pretty family like. We were really close uh, as a as a as a team. That's awesome. And that really helped because when we started again uh, with Bucks, uh, we were kind of distributed and we, we kept in touch and people did their own thing. Yeah. Um, but then at that point, we actually kind of reunited a part of the team uh, that already knew everything. So it was actually quite wonderful because then you can you can start with a team and a product that you ran exactly, um, and it, it it was also really quite nice that the the like from a technical perspective the architecture matched so we were easy it was easy for us to communicate at how does everything work yeah we both use kind of um, reactive systems so like very event event based and such and use Kafka so that was nice and then what was really getting used to we were a way smaller team yeah so I would say we went from an actual team at Blockport. How many people? Uh, at Blockport, we were yeah. um, uh, around, they say 22 engineers, around 30 people. Okay. And we went from a team, because that's really like a team size. You have a few teams running and doing things and, and there's like a, um, a communication dynamic developing and it changes a lot. And then suddenly you're five, six people. Okay. Uh, and that that's what we started with, at, uh, with Bucks Crypto. Yeah. And that changes because, first of all, 
you've developed a platform that has a lot of domains. Yeah. So, and it, it's not it's not it's not very simple. The domain itself, you have crypto and trading on on their own are already relatively complicated. And then on top of that, you get compliance. Exactly. Yeah. You need to do KYC, which we luckily already did, but it definitely opens up a lot of new topics. And with that team size, it's not a team anymore. It's rather individuals. Yeah. And I think we really would not have been able to pull it off uh, if it wasn't that for for the previous team to join us again. Yeah. They had all the domain knowledge and such. Now we're actually getting to being a team again because we're we're growing. So that, yeah. that that's great. Uh, but with the biggest learning experience of joining Bucks, I think for us, um, as I said, some you make some decisions right and some wrong. I think. Compliance is is a big topic. It's okay. really important. We always believed in compliance, but it's it's a pretty complicated structure to to navigate, especially if you don't have uh, all the information and the connections and such. Yeah, and I think we learned a lot uh, around uh, around doing that the right way at Box. So that that's a really positive uh, positive side, and we're we're extremely autonomous. I think yeah. Box is. Um, as a, also have as an engineering driven uh, cu- culture, uh, pr- pretty much. We were oh. very engineering driven, uh, and that that allows uh, for a pretty, uh, I think, effective execution. I really believe that it's super important to have engineering really high high up in kind of the strategy and where where the product is being shaped. Yeah, because uh, it's uh, it's it's part of product as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's so close to each other that it needs to be as high as the product, uh, if not higher. Yeah, with culture and processes and team building going on at the same time as well. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, awesome. So then Bucks came in, and, and I mean, they have the, uh, you call it compliance, they have the compliance knowledge, at least, from their previous experiences as kind of a stock exchange, right? Right, so um, Bucks is a, is a neo broker. Yeah. So uh, in that sense, it's slightly different than a typical exchange, but uh, they are basically, they're simplifying what, what previous brokers have always uh, tried to offer. Yeah. And in the Netherlands, actually, it's... it's you know, it's quite strict overall, um, which uh, which uh, I have to add is not necessarily a, a bad or a good thing. I don't have a really a value judgment about that, but it's it's definitely important to navigate that well. And the thing is, like you get the way I see it, at least, is you get more options because yeah. you're larger, you have more knowledge, uh, better connections, and also um, just more power and more more funds as well. Yeah. On the other hand, you're slower because yeah, it's complicated decision making. Things have to be reviewed. Things take time. Things take time. Yeah. And, and and the thing is, like, if you're a startup and you're in an unregulated industry, you can just do whatever. Exactly. And and if it doesn't work, you just revert it and and you're 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 set. Yeah. But the things are not so reversible in a legal legal respect. Like once you do something wrong, you already did it wrong, and then you know you have to really you make have sure to face that the consequences. Yeah, and that that really changes decision making processes, rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the longer processes take, the more irreversible they will become. Also. Yeah, there's there's probably a relationship there. Yeah, yeah I feel yeah, like yeah. 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 So from a personal perspective, I mean, uh, I would think it's interesting to to first start up with a startup, let's call it, and then join an existing company back again because your dynamic kind of changes in what you were doing versus what your goal is in joining that company again. How did you experience that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. So, yeah, I can only as as you as you asked for, I can only answer this from a personal perspective. I think. Yeah. What I love about startups, and it also it's a really personality driven thing, right? So sure. I, I I thrive in in environments where we have to create order from chaos, yeah. And that means that I don't necessarily like chaos, <laughs> but it's rather that it definitely makes makes me tick, right? And yeah. I see the same thing in the team that we have right now, and that that dynamic changes when you start something and you're very small. There's no structure, nothing, 
and you have to kind of get to kind of a baseline of, of processes and structure. Yeah. Now we came in with what we thought was structure, you know, after running block for block work for two years and such. And then we saw like real structure. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that looks like a super structured uh, uh, environment, but rather um, that there des- definitely more uh, time put in thinking about like, why are we doing this in, the, in this way? And you have a department for that. And we, we didn't have those notions. Yeah. So I think from a, from a personal perspective, it changed a lot. Um, you are, I would say, it's less easy to just suddenly do experiments. That was really kind of the, the mindset. Uh, okay. If you want to do something at Blockboard, like just do it. Yeah. You know, we, we, we launch something next week, we try it out, we work through the night and, and see what, what comes out. Yeah. Uh, and that, that really changed. I think it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I, I, would, I would say that overall, you, from an engineering side at least, uh, you get the time also to recuperate a little bit and think about like tackling certain things around your technical depth and, and, and start thinking about things in a more holistic sense rather than just creating or releasing features. Yeah. Uh, so it, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it depends pros yeah. and cons, right? Yeah. Yeah. You get that. I mean, you mentioned kind of testing the waters and, and experimenting more. Uh, my previous guests actually have mentioned that, that that is one of the cruxes in kind of bigger organizations and that it is very hard to do that in a bigger organization, but also so valuable I mean, from an academic point of view, you always kind of A-B test uh, and you try and you see what works better for you and you, you go that route based on that. Yeah. Uh, so you guys still experimenting? I mean, you mentioned doing less of that. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like as I said, you get more options if yeah. you're a bigger company. And I think that's actually, it. I mean, that's awesome. You, that's what you want as a business. You want to have options yeah. and you want to be able to navigate, especially a complicated landscape. And what is, what is indeed is kind of sad is that while getting more options, you also kind of um, give in in terms of your capability to decide what option is best based on information and just random experimentation. Yeah. Because the consequences are more severe. Like it takes a longer time to, uh, to recover from certain decisions and such because yeah. you're just a large organization. So what I believe is, um, and that's kind of also ties into the, the, the decentralization idea. Um, I, I believe that there is there's a, definitely a balance to be found in allowing uh, a lot of autonomy, uh, which more or less ties in with uh, aspects of decentralized governance. Yeah. And um, so we're not necessarily experimenting more to actually answer your question. I would say that we, we do that less. Yep. We're looking for ways to do it more. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's certainly less less structured how, how we did it. Uh, and uh, it just it takes a little while to actually catch up on how you can do a really good structured experiment. Um, because we run on web, yeah. And in web, it's pretty easy to do experiments. Uh, but when you run a native app, which uh, what Box offers only native apps, um, experimentation is also a little bit more complicated. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, we really have to figure out the the proper way to do this. And, and when you're dealing with financial products, it's also quite quite difficult because yeah. you need to do like a lot of testing. Because if something goes wrong, you know your your accounting doesn't check out at the end of the day. It's going to be a lot of work to try to 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 fix that. Yeah, the stakes are a lot higher in that regard. They are, yeah. And I think that's also something I underestimated maybe in the beginning is that. Uh, you know, we're, when working with typical products, it's uh, quite a lot easier to do experiments. Yeah. But when you're dealing with transactions and you actually need to have uh, a very strong guarantees, then then yeah, also from an engineering side, it just changes stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Um, right now, I'd like to take the time uh, for the viewers. Actually, if you guys have any questions at the end of this session, we're going to do a, a Q and A, so you can just post them uh, in the chat right there. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, I actually have a question for you as yeah, well. Go ahead. When did you get into crypto? Because I know that you're... <laughs> it was uh, 2017, actually, kind of mid-2017. 
Right. My colleagues were talking about it. A guy had mined his own Bitcoin and was kind of getting getting me enthusiastic about the idea of kind of decentralized currencies uh, and, and your own, managing your own finance that way, that sort of stuff. Um, so at the end of 2017, that's when I actually invested uh, and got more of an introduction to the community cool. uh, and more basically more introduced to a lot of different coins and, uh, and technology that's out there. Right, and then from that point on, you started uh, just looking into. Like, yeah. Is it more from a technical side, or yeah. it's both? I think I think the social dynamics are very interesting. Uh, I think coming from twenty seventeen and, and seeing what's happening now, there's a lot of misinformation, uh, and I also like following the the psychological aspect of of how things move, what communication is out there, uh, and how the market reacts to that, or how the people react to that, react to that. So it's both from from like, let's say, a technology point of view. A visionary point of view and, and more of a psychological aspect as well. Right. Yeah. That that's also one of the the cool things I, I think in in crypto is that you know it's it com it combines psychology, uh, technology, um, even in, in some aspect like geopolitics and such. Like you, you can go really far with thinking about like what what is the impact here. Yeah. Uh, that that makes it uh, such an interesting uh, kind of domain to to dive in because you don't have to be technical to actually find it interesting. It's interesting from a lot of other uh, oh, yeah. perspectives as well. Yeah, I mean, investors, I, I don't think they understand, let's say, the majority, and this is my personal opinion, I don't think the majority understands the technology. Uh, but they do invest because they see it as an investment point of view. So you don't need necessarily, in my opinion, need to understand the technology. Uh, but as soon as you have kind of an idea of the vision, that's something you can you can put your money behind, as many people have done. I yeah, think. yeah, really, it's 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 ideologies that are kind of realized through technology. Yeah, and you can decide like there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of layers to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really agree with that. Yeah. So you started out with kind of a vision on on where let's call it the crypto community and the technology was going as a whole. It's now 2021. Uh, what's is your vision still the same? Have you confirmed so some of the assumptions you had back then? Wow. My vision is definitely not the same. Yeah. Definitely not. I think I, I under actually I, I was I was bullish, so to say, yep. on crypto also in 2017. I would say that I became more bullish over time. And yep. I think I actually severely underestimated the scope of what crypto could do. Yeah. I didn't envision NFTs, for example. Okay. I, I I didn't see that that coming. I mean it made it made sense. Yep. You know, once you start reading and like, yeah, non fungible tokens, pretty cool idea. We can do our digital art and such. Yeah. What I what I still very very much hold on to is the idea of the well the fact that we can distribute um what i would say like protect power rather like yeah. the, the fact that there are so many people that do not have the ability to save funds yeah um and the funny thing is like there's there's a lot of people that don't have a bank account yeah but there's actually many of those people they have the ability to access internet and a device exactly and most of the mobile phones nowadays they um, they have a secure enclave where you can just store uh, like a, a kind of uh, uh, you can store very sensitive data there like a private key yeah and that's that's one of the fundamental kind of aspects of my personal vision there is that we are just organizing information in the end yeah and i think it's taken quite a while like uh, internet era to get to the infrastructure that we have right now but what always happens when you know you have to build something that solves problems and in that sense and you're dealing with um, limited information at that time, like the Internet Engineering Task Force and all that stuff. Like they were, they didn't know everything, and there's a lot of improvements. But we're still running on very old infrastructure as well. Like yeah. there's issues in the internet with BGP, and like sometimes the, the half of the internet's down. Yeah. And I think 
in that sense, uh, blockchain is is is, is, is in, in some aspect is nothing more than just uh, infrastructure, and and then on the other level, it's also uh, programmable money, right? So. And, and that's really what I believe is that there's there's a very multi-layered like applicability, and yeah. that's also why it's hard for people to decide like is is crypto valuable because you can attack crypto from the um, environmental aspect, which I think is arguable. Yeah. But then you can also attack it from the financial aspect. Yeah, the money laundering and such. You can also attack it from a technical aspect. Yeah, but it's slow. Yeah. Uh, but the thing is, I don't think these are all uh, needed together to actually get the benefit, right? So we could use the infrastructure separate from the money. We could use the financial aspects without some of the infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, we can also mine with less environmental impact. So, and I think that that's really the way we have to look at it. It's like a, a really a layered or a system of, of components and modules that all have different purposes and yeah. they don't necessarily tie in that much. They could, but they don't have to. Yeah, that's very interesting. Then that also means you would see that in different technologies out in the space because they would need to focus on those aspects you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. You mentioned NFTs, uh, and I'm not sure if everyone knows what that is. Can you explain non-fungible tokens? Yeah, sure. So um, generally, when you have uh, uh, have a token, um, one token is basically um, is is not identified as a unique token, right? Yeah. So if you if you you and me have one Bitcoin, um, and we exchange it, it's not as if anything really changed. Yeah, uh, because we still have one Bitcoin. Exactly. But when you're talking about NFTs, that's not the case. So yeah. you would have NFT A and I would have NFT B, which for example is a piece of art. Like I make a nice paint drawing and I make that into an NFT and you do the same. Yeah. Then they're fundamentally different things. So they're, and, and that's what you call kind of uh, non-fungible. So they're uniquely identified tokens in a way. Exactly. And uh, well, the cool thing about this is, is that people can sell them. So there's like uh, markets and, uh, and like a whole community yeah. And, and really fast and big as well, developing about uh, around this uh, with NFTs being sold for uh, up to millions. And how do you create one? Because you can sell one for, for millions, let's say. How do I create an NFT around something? Yeah, it's interesting. So you basically just publish the NFT as in this is, this is what I have to sell and you can pay me for this particular kind of on-chain um, recorded piece of art. Yeah. And the, the interesting here, thing here is that, and that, that's a question I also got from, from others, well, yeah, but you can still copy the image, right? Yeah, and 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 that that that's true. Like theoretically, you could just send me uh, a screenshot of the image, and I'll still have exactly something that resembles that. But I'm not the actual owner, and it's recorded on chain that I'm the owner. Yeah. So in that sense, those things are are kind of separated. So if you're an artist and you want to create an NFT, you create your artwork, yeah. and then you just tie an NFT, which is an on-chain kind of recorded identifier for the artwork that you have. Yeah, and then that's what you would sell. Oh, that's um, awesome because you would identify then as the owner uh, instead of all the copies that might be around there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and people actually value that ownership because they would pay for it. Yeah, and I think it's really, you know, it took me a while to, to realize, but people are, and, and it's not a bad or a good thing, again, it's it's remarkable to, to see that people are actually interested in pretty simple things, and it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And, and that, that's cool, because some of the questions you get from a more technical uh, size, like, well, NFTs, you know, does it make a lot of sense? Can, I can literally just copy the image. So yeah. what, what's the value there? But there's there's a social and a cultural value there. And I think that's really important. And that's also why I think it ties very nicely into art. Because that's also hard to define systematically. Art's, art's subjective. It's vague, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's cool. I think it's really beautiful that we've we have now kind of entered that realm of that we're able to provide value for something that is so rigid as a technology uh, and, and also so much focused on like consensus and really structured aspects. And then we, we can actually support something like art, something so yeah. abstract and vague. And that's been there for a while, like it's, it's, it's established. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's probably here to stay. Yeah. Awesome. Looking back for me personally on, on 2017, there was a lot of technology out there then uh, that is not really relevant now. Uh, obviously, some stuff has survived, but there's always new stuff going in and out. It's like completely the Wild West sometimes. Yeah. Why Why are there so many like different technologies popping up and going down? And like, why is it the Wild West, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the, the feeling I get is that, well, first of all, naturally, it's the obvious answer is it's about money. Like, yeah. you know, people can make a lot of money there, which I think is a, is a reasonable goal to have. Um, but there's also, what, what I find so cool is that there's um, a very academic aspect to it, or at least if, you're, if, you're, if you become motivated by, uh, on an intellectual level by knowing better than someone else yeah. or looking at someone else's work and thinking, I can do that better, then the crypto world's probably pretty nice for you. And yeah. that's what I see a lot. Like there's, there's this nice intersection where you have people, uh, engineers or, or researchers that look at consensus algorithms and such or a cryptographic aspect. And they think Ethereum, nice idea, but I can do it way better. And yeah. then these people are then tied together with people that are more focused on the business aspect. Um, and I think that that's, that's really quite a nice combination you get there. Because uh, it's such, a, a, and, and that's the really positive aspect, it's so much in the public domain. Yep. And I think that's easy to miss as well. It's like open source software is a thing, but in this sense, crypto is taking it one step further. Yep. And I think that's that's really nice. Yeah, it's completely out there. And I mean, that's why I think speed to market, or uh, how do they say that, speed to launch? The time to market. Time yeah. to market is so important because if you're, let's say, more established and you're a bit slower in your decision making, someone could pick up that idea and just crush it uh, with time to market and just leapfrog you basically. Yeah. 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 Which is really, really insane. Yeah. So that's why you think like things are popping up more going down more because of that kind of openness and, and accessibility, let's call it. Yeah. I think that really helps uh, people to know what they want to improve on. Right. Because I, I can theoretically, yeah. I can go online and just go into a rabbit hole for weeks and understand every detail about Ethereum. Yeah. And that's generally not possible in traditional markets at all. Yeah. And the cool thing is then I can do that and I can figure out like, well, nice, but I can do it that way. Exactly. Uh, and I think the fact that you have that really opens up a lot of uh, interesting potential innovation. Exactly. And probably lots of the coins out there have done that. Yeah. And then, of course, there's also shit coins, right? And yeah. So that, yeah. That's part sure. of the world as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's changed a lot and it's definitely maturing. Uh, but there's also a danger in there, I think. Uh, I mean, I've seen, let's call just, I'm just going to call him out. Elon Musk has tweeted a lot of things that has have affected the market completely, either in a good way or in a completely bad way. Yeah. And people have either made a lot of money, but probably more so lost a lot of money that way as well. So you can see kind of the, the immaturity that's still in the market. Yeah. When do you think that'll mature up? Yeah, so I'm not sure when. Yeah. And I'm also not sure how, because crypto can be like, it's, it's already becoming partially regulated, Yeah, but certainly I don't think the intention should be that it, that it becomes similarly regulated to yeah. other currencies. Um, and I, I completely agree. Like you, you, you now see that there is, uh, companies and, and, and individuals like Elon Musk that have, uh, have too much impact there. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I tend to see it as growth pain. And I mean, it really, um, just to, to say it how it is, it sucks that, yeah. that people lose money like this. Um, but on the other hand, it's also very important for any individual to be a responsible investor. And I think that that's really kind of where we have to seek the balance. Like we have to learn from, from these things that we 
uh, as companies that offer trading services especially, you have to offer the right information to users. And this is exactly what regulation is for, right? It's yeah. consumer protection. Uh, so I think in a way it could be very good, um, but I would not be able to give any kind of timeline on what, what would be realistic there. Yeah. I do have high hopes for uh, for Mika, uh, Markets and Crypto Assets, which is a regulatory framework that they're working on in the EU. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for some of the implementation details there. They want to have a framework um, in effect by 2024. 2024, that's yeah. their aim? Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's that's awesome. I, I love that you tied it all together in, in still the responsibility lies with the consumer in this case. Uh, so invest um, on your own accord, basically, and responsibly. Yeah, with care. Yeah, because especially in crypto, there's yeah, there's a lot of shitcoins out there. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's very risky. And on the other hand, we have also us as companies, Bucks and Bucks Crypto, uh, we have to inform people about, about the risk in a legit, legitimate way as well. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. On that note, I think I'm going to head into the, the Q&A section of uh, today's session. Cool. Uh, again, if you have any questions, put them in the chat. And I'll, uh, I'll see if I can find some right now. Let's see. All right, let me ask this question from Frank. With your product, you make trading easier for a large group of people that otherwise wouldn't trade. Most box ads I see are promoting CFDs, a product that is very risky. It gives me a bad taste in the mouth because it feels like you want to earn money from unsuspecting customers like a casino does. What are your efforts to protect individual customers from losing a lot of money or worse, getting personally bankrupted? Well, that is a big question. That is a big question. <laughs> Well, thanks for, for the question, uh, Frank. Um, I, actually, unfortunately, I don't think I'm able to answer it. Yeah. Because I'm not, uh, I'm not, even though I do work at Box and we work together, uh, I don't think it would be uh, would be right for me to answer something about a different product. Yeah. Uh, overall, as, a, as I said just, just now, is that I think informing users about the risk is very important and that's something that, that we are focused on yeah. at, at Box. And I think that's that's an important aspect that we should continue to be focused on yeah. and not have a mindset like let do, let's do the minimal amount possible. Exactly. Um, but other than that, uh, I, would, I wouldn't have a lot to add there because I don't uh, make those decisions. I would be able to answer the same question for crypto, for example. I would be happy to. Uh, and there it's, it's really, again, about in, informing yeah. um, and also, uh, yeah, it's really a kind of a, a, a when you encrypt, you have margin trading as well, and I think, and rightfully so, there's just a lot of warnings around like the fact that you could lose all your money. Yeah, uh, and I think that's the best that we can do, and, and regulation helps with that as well. Yeah, I think the the average consumer is growing, just in a general sense, they're looking more towards environmental stuff, for example, uh, image. What do you do for for good causes and all that? And that also has to do with the misinformation. If your company keeps giving out misinformation, the consumer will see that at a certain point, and they will respect the right amount of information and the right learnings that you give out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Like the, there's, more, uh, there's more power uh, lying with the consumer nowadays, and I yeah. think that's, uh, that's something uh, quite, quite great, actually. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Let me see. From Dylan Parfit, if you're looking back at your own role within your own startup, where you're at now, which, which one do you prefer and why? So kind of comparing both roles, you've, the one you've had versus the one you have now. Yeah, this is a really difficult question to answer for me. Um, 
I don't think I would have actually uh, I would have a strong preference, but that's also because they happened in order. Yeah. So I was not capable of having the role that I have now a few years back, but I was also not capable of having the role that I had a few years back before that. So I would say I'm mostly happy about the learning experience and the fact that I could follow up with this role yeah. uh, based on the previous one. I think if, if I look at the amount of fun or thrill I had, that that's part of the startup life. Yeah. That is definitely something that I will probably always look back back on in a very um, grateful way. Yeah. On the other hand, it's also really quite nice to sometimes have normal working days. Yeah, exactly. That's actually quite nice. So it really depends. And I think these things have to go in phases. Um, but overall, uh, I would prefer to have a, a switch in rules. And that's also a very personal thing is... Um, one of the interview questions, actually, I also ask uh, like to people on like an architect or CTO level, is what do you think an architect or a CTO is? And the funny thing about that is, is you can ask five different or ten different people, and you'll get at least uh, half that amount of different answers. Yeah, because there is no formal definition for these things, and that's why I feel that the perfect role, and that's what I love about my job so much, is you have to adapt. Like your ego, your your value, what you do and do not know has to be consistently adapted to the people that you have around you. Yeah. And it's not important what I know. It does really doesn't matter. And I'll, I'll, like I'm making mistakes as well. Uh, and in that sense, what, what I like so much is that you get the ability to um, reflect on those mistakes and immediately try to fix them. Because that's also the responsibility that you have is to continually try to decide and fix and, and improve uh, together with everyone else. And that's actually consistent between the two roles. Yeah. And I want to keep it that way. That's awesome. That's a really Zen way of putting it. I mean, you couldn't do what you are doing now without the experience and reflecting back on that experience and implementing changes accordingly based on what you've learned. I, I love that kind of mindset and I'm completely behind it, not being afraid to fail, uh, but to fail to learn from basically. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. really cool. Cool. Cool to hear that. You know, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. For now, that's all the, the questions we have actually. Guys, if you have any more questions, just put them in the chat and we'll get to them. Yeah, I was actually wondering, now that we have a, a moment anyways, yeah. um, how do you look at uh, like the some of the projects that are out there? Like, Are there, are there any particular ones that you follow or are interested in from a crypto side? Um, up until now, I've just followed the, the main two, so more Ethereum and more Bitcoin. Right. I've always kept an eye on, on some of the smaller stuff. Uh, just to see how how they would grow or, or kind of to keep track of, of what they've accomplished and where they're heading. Um, one in particular that I got in touch with really early on in, in 2017, uh, it was called Rayblox at the time, it's now called Nano, uh, is one in which transactions are instant and feeless uh, because that is kind of the large pain points of Bitcoin. It's also where the environmental problem comes from uh, in the proof of work that needs to go in there. Mm -hmm. um, Whilst Nano is completely fleetless, well, how do you say that? It's instant and it's feeless, basically. There's no mining going on. Right. So that's that's one I've always kept an eye on, just because of those two aspects. And I don't know exactly how they've done that from a technology point of view. I don't really care. I care about what they do with that mm -hmm. from a product point of view. Right. Yeah, that is, that is actually quite valuable. So I, I don't know a lot of projects. So I tend to focus more on the, uh, like, the, I really like the idea of, interchain so that we can have all these chains communicate with each other yeah um but it's certainly valuable for like really small transactions so iot of course is a typical example of where you need high, um, fast finality so like fast settlement of transactions yeah and then also 
very low fees because the, the 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 throughput, like the amount of transactions, of course, way higher. So insane, you, yeah. you don't want to, I don't know, have a have a sensor in your house that you pay like 10k for exactly. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, I don't, and that's what I like about the interchain side is that you can have Ethereum, which does a lot of things well, yep. and then you can have a kind of other chain that integrates quite well uh, that does other things well. Yeah. So uh, I hope I hope that's going to become a reality, like these cross-chain um, uh, platforms, which which looks like it's go, it's going that way. Yeah, I think it should be any any ones in particular that you keep track of, or you kind of just want to mention it in in the vague kind of technology sense. Yeah, I don't I don't particularly subscribe to. Like uh, I, I tend, be also because there's just so much out there. Yeah. And like the amount of projects is too much. I, I tend to not even be able to pick one. I mean, I've, I've followed Cosmos, for example, because I yeah. just like their tech. Uh, they all, because they put it in a layered uh, system. So they have Tendermint and Cosmos. Those are two different technologies that integrate with each other and are capable of doing cross-chain things. Yeah. But overall, I really like subscribing to ecosystems. Okay. So I think, you know, there's layer two ecosystem now. Um, there's DeFi, there's NFTs, there's interchain. Yeah. Uh, there's all of these kind of kind of yeah ecosystems that are slowly forming, and new projects are are created there. Gaming is one of them. You know, that's it, it goes on and on. Yeah. And that's really what I'm interested in because those are are projects that are probably going to work together or compete together to figure something out. Exactly. So when you when you hear about a new kid on the block that kind of interests you in in kind of goal setting and vision, uh, do you drill down into their technology as well? Is that something you always do? I just look for interesting stuff. Like, for example, recently I read about Avalanche, um, which is actually, so it's, it's partly funded by Andreessen Horowitz, which for me is an interesting thing. Yeah. That's kind of what I look for. Like, do I find any signs of this project being capable? Because that's really what differentiates them. Right? Like it's exactly. In a bull market, it's not hard to raise yeah. uh, funds or to create an idea, but being capable of executing it is, is, is quite hard. And uh, I think that, that really comes also down to the tech. So I'll first look at, like, who's behind it and then... Whether they whether they're promising, and if it's yep. super high level, then I generally don't dig a lot further. Uh, but if it's a lower level, then then it becomes more interesting because then they are solving infrastructure problems. Yeah, but that's just a personal interest. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's a lot of aspects that that go into making something successful, right? You have the people, you have the processes they put in place, the product they have out there, and kind of the vision that ties it all together and that they stand behind. Uh, I usually look at the people as well, uh, and and kind of the product vision is what I subscribe to the most. I'd say. Yeah, yeah, and that's the you know culture, um, and I, I think uh, I, I know that you're also like um, thinking about those things. You know, culture really is what makes a difference. I think in, in, in a lot of ways, so you can have a product, you can have processes and such, but how these things come to be realized yeah. is is through culture. Exactly. I mean, it, it always boils down to the people that make it that also define the culture that you have. Yeah, and a culture is also kind of like I really like a systems perspective of things. So like yeah. system dynamics and such. And it's just an incentive structure, a culture as well. Like yeah. you just create social incentive structures rather than economical ones. Um, yeah. But still, that's how the system then eventually will kind of optimize, like a fitness function yeah. towards these these things. Yeah. yeah. What What do you mean when you say kind of a systems way of thinking? Right. So, um, when you when you design like a, just a software system, yeah. you have to of course dissect it into like components. And I think I think everything is a system uh, yeah. in in its own way. So we have like thermodynamic systems. We have software systems as we said um, and you can describe kind of how things interact with, because the, the thing is like the useful things or the meaningful things are generally non-linear yeah so it's it's pretty hard to get an idea of what's going to happen but to get any idea of kind of a high level dynamic it's nice to have a few variables that you can say like well in this system that we have in the organization 
there's these kind of variables that we think are going to be optimized for. And um, the ratio between, uh, yeah, there's this kind of stock to flow model. Yeah. Uh, you can you can like look at, okay, so what is the current amount of people that we have that are working on this problem? And how many people, for example, are leaving and, and joining the party and what's their knowledge? And you can look at these variables and like um, make it really clear and simple on how you can solve a problem. And it opens up a lot of new insights because you get a new perspective, a very simplified perspective in a way of how to solve a particular problem. Yeah. Whereas if I wouldn't do that, I personally at least, I tend to um, focus too blindly on the problem itself without actually looking at the total kind of the overview of the system. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like solutions are in very, very uh, unexpected corners. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. And that, that makes it interesting. That's very cool. That's a very cool way of putting it. I mean, you need to maintain that that overall vision of the, the kind of landscape you're in, I guess. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Especially, if, you know, you also uh, work in engineering, then it's it's can, it can be quite overwhelming uh, yeah. sometimes to work on a large system if you, don't, if you don't do that, like carefully dissect it into all of the smaller bits. Yeah, exactly. Or understand the thing you're building, basically. That's, yeah. that's a hard one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. So how, how has your role kind of changed in, in the, your current role? I'm wondering, as an engineer, are you more towards the, the mentoring now and, and being kind of, I, I called it, maker or multiplier? Uh, no, I don't do mentoring. Okay. Um, I don't think I'm... So sometimes like I can offer perspective, Yeah. Um, but I really like to... Uh, someone else put it, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of quoting, but hire smart people and get out of their way. Uh, that, really? that's yeah because that's cool uh, yeah and, and, and it does work right because the thing is like you don't i think it's important especially if you if you have a lot of responsibility or ownership over something yeah the the risk is that you become a bottleneck and if i would do a lot of so mentoring i think is important as in you can you can help people execute better but I would rather support them in finding whatever they want to to learn and giving their oppor- them opportunities that are kind of tailored to their level and such. Yeah, and then um, giving them responsibility. And I think overall, uh, it's also just uh, the, the the fact that we uh, generally only hire senior people. Yeah, so that that makes it quite easy. Exactly. So rather, I would I would just offer perspective, and sometimes a good one, and sometimes a wrong one, and then we uh, we would all learn from it. Yeah, and there's just certain aspects like security. Uh, that that I'm mainly focused on. So my role changed from being, it was already kind of, it went really fast into a more operational one as we scaled. So when we were like 22 people at Blockboard, it was hard for me to actually do enough engineering. Yeah. Because, and I think it's actually good to not do a lot of engineering if you have that role. Because then again, you're going to be a bottleneck. Exactly. Because uh, you run, your your day is really decided by random events yeah. sometimes. And, and you cannot deliver proper software if your day is decided by random events. So uh, I would just try to focus on smaller projects that would add value, but not block anyone. And okay. I found that really in the DevOps side. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, you can, I can, I'm used to reacting to stuff yeah. after a while uh, because communication is chaotic and systems are chaotic. So when something goes down, you can react. And then also you have a, a unique perspective because you have a really big high-level overview of everything. And I think that really is quite handy uh, as a basis for doing infrastructure changes or making developers more productive and such. Exactly. So that that's kind of what I focus on now. That's really cool. I I, I actually came from from more of an operational side, and I moved towards development, and now we're doing kind of both in the current project I'm at. Interesting. So how how do you see then that? Um, how was that transition for you? 
for me, the, the thing I always was missing within kind of the, the operational side of things I was doing uh, was that developer's perspective because I, I would get something kind of that I was responsible for, but I would never learn how it ticked or even make the changes to make it tick the way I think it should, uh, even though I had kind of a, a dev background uh, from my education. So I, I, could, I could kind of figure out how things ticked, but I never got to do that basically. I did like having the, the helicopter view and seeing what systems tied together in which ways and the integrations in between. And I always took that with me when I actually made that step towards development. Um, so always keep that in mind, keep the complete landscape in, so, uh, in mind and also why we're doing things. I always like to challenge uh, why we are doing A versus B, for example, because I like to retrieve the, the right amount of value in the things we are doing. Uh, so sometimes it looks like I'm not really doing a whole lot of things but that's because I'm doing the right thing or, or questioning doing the right things. Right. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. And it's true. Like sometimes you can feel horribly unproductive after, yeah. at least that's what I have after a few days. But then I do realize that the value of your time is not always in, in the thing that you measure. So yeah. you can also do the right thing or prevent the wrong thing from happening and such. And that's really such a unique kind of perspective that you get if you have both the helicopter view and you're able to sometimes change things on the lower end. Yeah. Because you can immediately... Uh, put things in effect when you see room for improvement. Exactly. And that's really why I like the DevOps uh, side. So do I get it right that you're in a DevOps? Uh, kind we of don't label ourselves like that, but we're doing both things, basic, basically. So yeah, right. I'd, I'd say we do. So I just uh, ditch the buzzword, but <laughs> do the thing. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, and you, you guys have, I guess, multiple kind of flavors within your company, both more of the DevOps-oriented teams and more of the engineering teams, or am I assuming that incorrectly? Most of it's actually engineering teams. Okay. Um, so... I'm now uh, setting up uh, together with uh, with a few others uh, a DevOps team. Yeah. So, and that that it's actually quite nice that DevOps generally should be done by devs. Yeah. Uh, and then operations should kind of provide also support in that sense. Um, but at, at some point, uh, you want to have a more sophisticated focus on that, and then you get into kind of the realm of a platform team that yeah. we're trying trying to set up now. And I think overall, we just throughout the whole box and also in our in our team um, hire kind of uh, ops capable devs okay uh, and, and I think that really helps because then you can just give them the controls that they need yeah and if they need something they can ask for it but generally they'll be able to figure stuff out on their own yeah uh, but from a high level you can keep things in order uh, but I think it's really cool if devs can and, and important that devs can um, basically get shit done yeah, uh, exactly. on their own yeah I, I like the term that you put it ops capable but I can't really place on on how you would kind of make a guesstimate on how someone can do that or not. To me, so from my personal point of view, operation, when I first landed, it was the, the first job I got fresh out of college. Um, it was a wild, wild west as well with regards to problems. Uh, and if I did not have kind of that curious mindset of, of thinking, all right, it might be this or it might be that and trying things out and, and seeing for myself, uh, I wouldn't have made it because you need to be exploratory and you need to figure out how things work. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's, the, that's the, the interesting thing is that at least the way I see it is that from an ops side, if, you're, if you want to be ops capable, yeah. it's, it's as you said, it's mindset. Yeah. Rather, because you have to navigate problems, you have to communicate a lot, you have to communicate also the solutions to those problems and such. Exactly. And then as a dev, you will probably need a more, well, you need like focus, rigid mindset, um, and, uh, uh, and generally experience. Yeah. And, and a lot of knowledge naturally. And I think if you can combine those things, yeah, then, then you get into that realm. And I think what I, when I look at ops capable, I, I just try to um, look at like how, how much ownership or, or kind of 
chaos navigation can this person easily do? Yeah. Uh, and just get people together to, to solve a particular problem. Yeah. And it's also all about taking initiative, I guess, and being able to uh, offer perspective without being too... Um, to prominent in the conversation it's just it's really a kind of a communication thing i think yeah yeah I, I agree with that it's the taking initiative that i really subscribe to uh and also the communicating part of things i mean it's a it's a lot that's expected from you you need to first of all uh make yourself at ease in in chaos uh communicate what the chaos is and and how to solve it basically and you can also do that eventually yeah yeah it's a lot of things yeah yeah and and you know um i think navigating chaos is also uh, it's it's an it's a nice experience like i think it's at least that's what i experienced as a dev like when i was just building stuff yeah um it was sometimes maybe maybe you can relate as well um it was kind of sad that i couldn't actually see all the uh the way it was used yeah so what what is actually happening out there what are, what do users think uh yeah. what, what might be wrong what might be good and all those things and you want to have that feedback and the more you do on the upside and you more to def- you flatten that the more yeah. exposure you can get to uh, to those things yeah i get that i i think unconsciously or subconsciously i've always pulled towards that or or made it my mission to to gain a grasp of things also from an operational point of view so even though it wasn't my responsibility in the first place i made it a mission to to make it my responsibility nice yeah that that's that's eventually that's how you get stuff done i think it's also yeah. if if the culture is there to I, I i really believe in vulnerability so i think you know people are going to make mistakes yeah and i think i don't like to work with people that are not capable of accepting that everyone's going to make mistakes yeah because what's the, the way i look at it at least is like when you're especially when you're a leader you have to act like you're always on stage yeah um, and, and that's because when you and also as as a normal team member actually but when you become whatever frustrated or negative about someone else's mistake then as you're on stage that will definitely change the incentives in the in the in the culture and the system right yeah. because that makes it suddenly less safe like oh if i make a mistake perhaps i'm getting consequences or scolded yeah, it's now, confronting yeah and now we have to naturally you have to fix every mistake and be open about that yeah but i think that safety is is the first kind of premise and then we can expect each other to open up about the mistake and solve it together yeah um but uh, uh, i think uh, there's there's definitely an engineering sometimes not enough attention for the fact that you have to make a lot of decisions a lot of responsibility you're going to make mistakes yeah uh, and to to have a, an environment where it's it's cool to admit those mistakes yeah, exactly. actually promote it like oh, awesome and good job admitting that mistake uh, and uh, let's do it this way next time yeah yeah that's awesome when i first joined let's say my initial job uh, i thought i was so early in career that i could make any mistake that i wanted so not necessarily looking at the culture i just thought i was a wild card <laughs> so if i would make a mistake i would own up to it and be like yeah i mean i made i made this mistake but i've also learned from it so making mistakes was always something that kind of i guess came naturally uh as long as you learn from it and and be open about it because i've always i've also seen people that make mistakes and kind of just push it away under something and just hide it and tuck it away and don't talk about it uh and that gets nasty when that comes out Yeah. Yeah, yeah, also personally because you're yeah. you're afraid of of that because you have this secret to hide and oh, yeah. Then, yeah, but how how do you see that by the way? There's like when you when you make mistakes, there's kind of something that I think about every now and then is like do you is there a preference for sharing it openly, publicly like in in a group yeah. or individually? And I, I personally tend to to feel that um mistakes are best to be solved together uh in a, a smaller group yeah. uh, because it's easier to communicate about them. Yeah. Um 
But then again, there's also a good side to exposing the mistake to everyone, uh, because then everyone naturally is aware and, and can can have a say about that. Do you have any perspective on that, like how in teams and larger teams? I, I don't think it's a it's an or. I think it can work best in, in kind of a both situations, right. and it also depends if you're the one making the mistake. For example, if I made the mistake, I would first come to you as a as a personal guy and be like, "Listen, this is kind of what I've did, what I've done. Uh, what do you think of it, or how can we solve it, etc." And then you can go make that step towards the larger group as kind of a learning point of view and be like, "Well, this is what we've done, uh, but this is also how we solved it, or how can we solve it?" Um, just as a way of communicating it better, I like getting a lot of fresh perspective on things as well and challenge myself to communicate in such a way that other people understand it. Because usually you're dealing with a complex problem uh, and you've made a mistake, basically, and you need to communicate that you've done it, uh, but also the solution towards that. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, you're right. They don't have to be mutually exclusive at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I do, I do feel, you know, when, when it comes to mistakes um, or, like, the vulnerabilities, I was like, the more, um, the more kind of senior you get, yeah. sometimes the harder it is because sometimes get the feeling that you're not expected to make mistakes. Yeah. You're expected to know stuff. And uh, and that's the hard thing because theoretically, I mean, you are. Like, you're supposed to know stuff because that's why you get, like, responsibility. But on the other hand, it makes it harder sometimes to step over that kind of barrier. Like, okay, but I did. I actually did make a mistake, even though I know that I actually shouldn't have. Yeah. Um, and, and when you're a junior, as you said, or when you're just starting out in a completely new, it doesn't matter if you're a junior, actually, but just starting out in a new realm, yeah. you're like... Do I care? Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to make mistakes, and that's yeah. the way I'm going to learn right now. If you can be open-minded to that, that's that's probably very handy. Um, but uh, I don't know how you experience it. Like, the, the, the more you grow, the harder it becomes. Um, I, I wonder, like, what are kind of things that you believe also are good ways to deal with that? I think for me personally, it's it's managing expectations. I always ask, what do you expect of me? And if they say something I disagree with, we'll have a discussion about that. And I always am open that I am human and I'm going to make mistakes. I'll tell you what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. And even the things I'm bad at, I can do. Uh, but then you'll get that I might make a mistake there. So I, I think openness and honesty is always step number one and managing expectations from both sides. Uh, it just helps put your mind at ease. And also I think that the people that I'm dealing with, uh, it makes it easier for them to grasp where I'm coming from uh, and what they expect of me. Yeah, that's a good point. So it's like, as you grow... I guess it's also important to become self-aware yeah. so that you can communicate based on experience what kind of mistakes you could make yeah. uh, and know your own weak spots uh, and, and maybe over-communicate that you have them exactly. so that people know what to expect. Yeah, I mean, I'm completely open about what I'm good at and what I'm, what I'm not necessarily good at. Um, and I don't think people mind. I think people respect the honesty. I mean, I've, I've gained some compliments, people saying, actually, I, I always like it when you say, we need to figure things out, or I don't know that yet, but I can I can find you an answer if you give me a bit, uh, instead of just making a mistake and being like, well, I, this is it, and this is how it is. I'm always like, I need to double check, or I need to figure it out, or I don't know, but I can figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the right mindset to have, just to be open and honest about what you can do. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, yeah. you can still strive to be the best you. Uh, just be open and honest about it. Yeah, good point. Yeah, And there will still be cases, of course, where... You might not expect uh, to make a mistake or, or exactly you just don't know and you do say something that eventually turns out to be wrong yeah uh, but then it's also about like that part being being fine yeah exactly i mean you might have a, a difficult conversation uh but someone wise said to me like the difficult conversation is where you learn the most yeah which makes it way easier going into that conversation and being like well let's just see how it goes and and i'm here to learn as well from other people and to learn from my mistakes 
Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Certainly, it's it's those challenges um, that I mean, it's it's all still opinion. I, I really subscribe to the idea that any kind of if it, if a difficult if it's a difficult conversation, it's still just your kind of subjective perspective. Yeah. But if you look at what the what, what's going to be the consequence, like look look for the with the end in mind, basically, like not the conversation itself, but what's what's going to happen after. Yeah. Usually, it's pretty positive. It's exactly. It's pretty motivating even to start having that difficult conversation because the end result is usually quite nice. Exactly. I'm as a person, I'm very nervous, and people will say, "Well, well, I don't see that in you," uh, but it's because I I expect a lot of myself the most probably, um, but the way I put my mind at ease is always looking forward and looking. All right, if I have this conversation, what's going to come out of it? Uh, and based on that, I can put my mind on e- at ease and actually go into that conversation a bit more calmly. Let's just say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I think I I, I can relate to that. Yeah, quite well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, especially considering, you know, you have a lot of responsibility as an engineer. Yeah. And you can, you know, there's a lot of system aspects that you have to manage and you have to make a lot of micro decisions. And I really believe that, especially as we do more and more with startups and we have less processes where engineers have a, ho- a large, large amount of responsibility. Yeah. And we're also dealing like in, 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 um, in the realms of finance, but also like mental health and stuff. There's a lot of, lot of companies now also developing there and, and such that the ability to kind of have that mindset, you know, like vulnerability in making decisions, it, it, it was not initially part, that's the feeling I got at least, it's like when I looked at a few years back and spoke to older engineers as well, and, yeah. and my father was an engineer, it was not typically part of the way things were considered. Exactly. But now as the responsibility of an individual engineer becomes quite large, yeah, it's really important to have that proper decision-making communication process in there. Because um, otherwise, the amount of mistakes increases, but the consequences are also like way worse. So uh, I, yeah, it's it's actually an interesting aspect also to what I personally feel is is kind of the DevOps. Uh, it's not really the best term for it anymore because it's like so broad now. But yeah. um, to to that movement is to include these cultural and communication aspects because it's all about optimizing the way that we can deliver value exactly, and, and decisions are part of that. Yeah. And the, the whole human interaction there is, is quite important, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, 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 it's huge. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. I think that's uh, where we should round it off then. Thank that's you good. so much for coming on. Yeah, I thank had a you. a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah, let's do this again sometime. We'll Absolutely. probably be in London, but we'll manage something. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Beyond Coding. From your sponsors, Zebia, creating digital leaders. 